You know, this past Friday, our country celebrated our Independence Day. And I'm sure many of you uh, participated with a, your own celebration, a family get-together, cookout, friends, whatever the case may be. Maybe you even shot some fireworks off or even went to a fireworks show. How many saw a fireworks show on Friday night? There were, all right, several of you did. There were a lot of fireworks shows around Kansas City. In fact, there, here's a picture of one of many fireworks shows that took place. And, uh, you know, no matter how many times you see fireworks, they never seem to get old, do they? Uh, you just kind of stand in awe as they light up the sky with their beauty. You know, the same can be said of God's creation, especially when it comes to the Rocky Mountains. And uh, most of you know, every year our family drives out to Colorado uh, to the Rocky Mountains. And every year, it never ceases to amaze me when we get to the mountains, I just stand in awe again of the beauty and splendor of these majestic mountains. In fact, coming up on the screen, this is a picture of Mount Sneffels. And uh, Sneffels is over 14,000 feet high. It is often said to be Colorado's most beautiful mountain. Of course, you may have your own favorite mountain in Colorado. Uh, I have actually seen this mountain personally several times. It's a beautiful, beautiful mountain. And uh, next Sunday, our Youthquake Student Ministries, uh, the teens and the adults, they're going to be making their way out to Colorado for summer camp. They're going to Student Life Camp. They'll leave next Sunday night. And uh, teens and counselors, those of you that are going, here's a sneak peek of what you will see. Another picture. This is of Rocky Mountain National Park. It's one of many, many mountains in beauty and splendor and just the majesty of God's creation that you will see. Hopefully you'll have time out there to take a hike and even hike up to some different lakes and trailheads, and uh, you guys will have a great time. But you know, the Rocky Mountains are just one of many examples where the beauty of God's creation points us to something beyond ourselves. It really points us to the majesty of God himself. Everyone stands in awe of the beauty of God's creation, whether it's the mountains, whether it's a beach, whether it's even when you go south down to the, to the Ozark Hills in Branson or whatever the case may be around our country, around the world. But not everyone necessarily makes the connection from the beauty of creation to the majesty of God. In other words, not everyone sees the link between the beauty of creation and the glory and splendor of God. But David sure did. And Psalm 8 here is a praise psalm written by a man who saw the link and made the connection to the majesty of God when he looked up and saw the glory and splendor of the heavens and the work of God's fingers. Psalm 8 is the first praise psalm in this collection of the book of Psalms. In fact, the heading of this psalm says, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. And so apparently, David meant for this psalm to be sung as a praise to God in public worship, which brings us to the purpose of this psalm of praise. Notice this coming up on the screen. David's psalm of praise here. He wants you and I, 
He wants us to stand in awe of the majesty of God. He wants us to behold His glory and His beauty as seen in creation so that we will then fall down in worship of God as our Lord. David's goal in writing this psalm is to excite you over the majesty of God so he can then motivate you to worship God. David wants you to see what he sees. He wants you to feel what he feels when he stands in awe of the majesty of God. Yes, David wants you to stand in awe of creation, but only as it points us ultimately to the majesty or the glory of God. This is why David begins this particular psalm here with a declaration of the surpassing majesty of God in verse 1. Look at it again with me. I want to read it out of the English Standard Version. In fact, the NIV translation says, the same, says it the same way. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You're in all the earth. Now, David uses two different names for God here. The two words for Lord are not the same in Hebrew. And so the first Lord that you see in verse 1 with the Lord with all caps is the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is God's personal name. And it was first used by God when he tells Moses at the burning bush when he was in the wilderness, I am who I am, there in Exodus 3. The name Yahweh, in other words, I am, it points to God's self-existence. It points to his independence, to his absolute sovereignty over all creation. It is a powerful name, Yahweh, indicating that God is one who simply is, who did not come into being, does not go out of being and never changes his being because he depends on nothing for his being and all else depends on him. That's the idea of this name Yahweh that David uses here. But there's more. David says this mind-blowing Yahweh is our Lord. In other words, it's personal for David as it should be personal for us. Although God is powerful, Beyond our comprehension, he's personally involved in the lives of his people. Our Lord. The second name that David uses is the word Adonai. And it simply means, it's the idea of master or king or ruler. And when we use that word Lord in that regard, it signifies our humble submission to Yahweh to him as our king, as the ruler of our lives. In other words, this powerful God of ours is the one we submit to. He's the one we cry out to as our Lord. But don't miss what David says about our God. He says his name is what in all the earth? Is majestic or excellent in all the earth? In other words, there is no place in all the earth where God is not Yahweh, where he is not sovereign, where he is not the absolute one. Everywhere, everything depends absolutely on God. He has no viable competitors anywhere. Our God is above all things everywhere. He sustains all things everywhere. He is greater and wiser and more beautiful and wonderful than everything everywhere. 
our Lord. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the whole point of this psalm. That's the goal David has when he writes this psalm, that we would stand in awe of our Lord, that we would fall down and worship him as our Lord. That's David's passion in the psalm. And wrapped in between verse 1 and verse 9, David then gives us four reasons why we should stand in awe of the majesty of God and worship him. Let me share with you these four reasons to stand in awe. The first reason is this. Stand in awe because of the irony of God's strength. Stand in awe because of the irony of God's strength. Now, we usually pick up on irony when we see it. For example, irony is like a leaky pipe in a plumber's house. I thought that was funny. I guess nobody else did. Or irony is when a worker for the IRS gets convicted for tax evasion. That's irony, okay? And there's all kinds of examples of irony that we see every day in our lives. And David, what he does here, he magnifies the irony of God's strength in verses 1 through 2. Look what he says. He continues in verse 1, Who have, speaking of God, who have set your glory above the heavens? And then notice what he says in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So here's the irony of God's strength. We can summarize it like this. Though God's glory, though his majesty, though his strength is splashed across the heavens, he also displays his strength by using the weak to confound the mighty. Now to set up this irony, David first points us beyond the earth to God's glory above the heavens. In other words, David wants us to see the enormity of God's glory. And so he takes us as far as he can above the heavens. But God's glory is beyond what we can really fathom, what we can grasp with our finite minds. And that's when David then kind of brings it down for us when he says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. And so what David is doing, he's contrasting God's incredible might, his incredible strength, with the fact that he is even able to defeat his foes by using the weak and helpless creatures. And then David gives the examples of that, such as babes and children or nursing infants. Now this is remarkable. Just think about this with me. God is so powerful, so majestic, so mighty that he can use children to bring down those who oppose him. One of the more famous examples of this in the Old Testament is when a boy named David killed a giant named Goliath. And on that day, as many of you are familiar with that story, God displayed his strength by using the weak to conquer the mighty. But David says something that's rather interesting, too. He says, out of the mouth of babes, God 
has ordained strength or established strength. What in the world does that mean? What strength is it that God is talking about or David's talking about here? What strength does God use from the mouth of babes or children? Well, likely, it is the strength of praise for God. We have an example of this strength of praise recorded for us in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 21. And on that Sunday, that Sunday that we call, in our day and age, we call Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter, the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. On that Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus gets on the back of a donkey. He rides into the city of Jerusalem. And, of course, the people and children line the streets with palm branches, and they are singing, Hosanna to the Son of God or to the Son of David. Hosanna to Jesus Christ. They're praising him. And then David, once he gets into the city, he, he gets off the donkey, he goes into the temple, and he begins to heal miraculously the lame and the blind. And the little children are following him. And they see Jesus do this, his miraculous healings. And they continue to praise him. They continue to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. And the chief priests, and the scribes, who we would call those religious hypocrites, those religious leaders of the day, they hear the praise of Jesus by these little children, and they become indignant by it. They're irritated by it. And so they question Jesus. And they try to rebuke Jesus and rebuke these children, but Jesus, in turn, rebukes them by quoting this verse right here in Psalm 8. And he says, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of children and nursing infants, you have prepared praise. Jesus uses the word praise instead of strength. And so when David says strength here in Psalm 8, he is speaking of the lethal punch that praise packs. The praise of God is highly powerful even if or especially when it comes from sources that we consider weak. We consider insignificant and helpless, such as children, babes. And sometimes the mightiest weapon in the, God's arsenal is not argument, it's not brilliance, it's not eloquence, but it's simply the praise of our God. And that's what David is saying here. So stand in awe of the irony of God's strength. The second reason we should stand in awe is because, number two, of the mystery of God's care. Because of the mystery of God's care. Now, I can just picture David sitting out under the stars at night, looking up at the heavens, especially when he was just a shepherd, out on the night tending the flock, and on a clear night, looking up at the heavens and the stars and asking God in verses 3 and 4, look what he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? In other words, David is out on the night, in the night, and he looks up and he sees, and basically he considers. He considers what he sees. And contrary to the Big Bang Theory, David acknowledges that what he sees was created 
by God when he says, when I consider your heavens, Lord, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you, God, have ordained. And what does David see when he looks up into the heavens? Well, on a clear night, David could likely see 2,000 to 3,000 stars. But what if he'd had a good pair of binoculars like we have access to today? Well, David probably could have seen up to 100,000 stars. Or what if David knew that the Milky Way galaxy contains billions of stars? And if you were to count the stars in our galaxy, one per a second, it would take you 2,500 years to count all the stars in our galaxy. If David knew what we know today, I'm sure he would have been even more staggered than he already was. But David had enough, more than enough, to stagger him when he looked up at the heavens and saw the moon and the stars. You know, it's in our city, you go out at night and look at the stars, and you're like, where are they? But if you go out into the country and you look up at the night, you see all kinds of stars. And it's a very humbling thing to look up at the stars on a clear night, isn't it? It tends to make us realize just how small we really are in this massive universe of ours. In fact, here's a picture of the Milky Way galaxy to help you put our size into perspective. Consider this. You and I. We are one of over 7 billion people on this earth. And this earth is just a relatively tiny planet in a vast solar system. And this solar system is just a small part of our galaxy. And our galaxy is just one of 100 billion such galaxies in the universe. Did you know if the Milky Way galaxy, which is what you're seeing on the screen, were the size of the continent of North America, our solar system within the Milky Way galaxy would fit in a coffee cup. Years ago, the explorer William Beebe wrote about his visits with then-President Theodore Roosevelt at his Sagmore Hill home in New York State. After an evening of talk, the two men would go outside at night and they would search the skies for the Andromeda galaxy and then one of them would recite that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda it is as large as our Milky Way it is one of a hundred million galaxies it consists of one billion suns each larger than our Sun and then Theodore Roosevelt would grin and say now I think we are small enough let's go to bed that's what David is saying here that's the idea here David looks up at the heavens and he says, Oh, I am so small. And God, you are so great. What am I that you would pay attention to me? That's the thought process you go through as you consider the vastness of God's creation. Who am I? Who are we? We're nothing. We're small and insignificant in comparison. But that's the mystery here of God's care for us. The universe, look at it coming up on the screen. The universe reveals God's greatness 
And it reveals man's smallness, and yet God still cares for us. When David asked the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's, he's speaking with perplexed joy. It, it almost gives David divine goosebumps to think that God cares for him. And when David asks, what is man, he's not really asking a question so much as he's making an exclamation. It's really not what is man, it's more like, man, what is God? In other words, David, he's engaging in breathless praise as he stands in awe of the mystery of God's care for him. But wait. As if that's not enough, David goes on. He gives us another reason to stand in awe of God. Number three, stand in awe because of the glory of God's creation. Because of the glory of God's creation. Yes, we are small and we are insignificant in comparison to the vastness of God's creation. But folks, listen to me. David reveals to us here that we are also the glory of God's creation. In other words, we're the climax of his creation. Look what David says here in verses 5 through 6. He says, For you have made him, speaking of mankind, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beast of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. So despite our size in this grand universe of ours, David says there is something uniquely and utterly unique about us. If you made a continuum of every creature that God created, you know where, we'd, where we would fall in that continuum? We would be right up there next to the angels. In fact, David says that we're just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. In other words, David is telling us something here. And it's fascinating what he says. David is telling us that we are made radically different from the animals. We are in a radically different category than the animal kingdom. David says, we're not just a little higher than the animals. Oh, no, we are a little lower than the angels. Do you realize what this means? Folks, this has profound implications for you and I. It means we don't have to wonder who we are in this world. We don't have to wonder, why am I here in this world? David is telling us here. So many people today are searching and searching and searching and searching for significance in life and meaning in life, purpose in life. When David, right here in this psalm, is giving us the answer to life's most important questions. Who am I? And why am I here? Listen, if you want to know your identity, if you want to know your responsibility in this world, then, then pay attention. Because David is telling us something. He is telling us basically the same thing what God told us back in Genesis chapter 1 at creation. 
Let me summarize it this way in two simple points about the glory of God's creation. Here's my identity. Here's your identity. God made mankind in his image. That's our identity. Unlike any other creature on the planet, human beings are made in the image of God. We are unique because of what God says about us in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, where God says, listen to this, let us, speaking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is saying on behalf of the Trinity, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And he goes on in verse 27 and says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so when David says in Psalm 8 that God crowned us with glory and honor, what he's doing is he is identifying us not with the animals, but he's identifying us with God himself. Blow me away. He's saying that we have been made in the image of God. Our majestic God, our creator God. And folks, listen to me. Being made in God's image, we now reflect the glory of God in ways that other parts of creation do not or cannot. And so my identity is I am made in the image of God. You know what that makes me? Man, that makes me significant in the eyes of God. Regardless of what some other human being tells me. Regardless what even I think of myself, in God's eyes, I am significant because I am made in his image. By the way, this is the reason that we should treat other human beings with respect. Because every human being is made in the image of God. They deserve our respect. But we will never have respect for people without first having reverence for God. Why? Because, listen to me, we'll let Ethan walk by. Listen. Now focus back. Listen. Reverence for God is what leads to respect for humanity. And without reverence for God, we will not respect humanity. And that's why you see what you do today in our world. That's why you see a lack of respect for humanity in the value of life today. Because we don't have a reverence of God. We don't stand in awe of God as our creator and the one we are accountable to. The two go hand in hand. Listen to what one pastor and author writes. He says the most important thing you can do for people in your life, your family, your friends, your co-workers, is to treat them with respect. We respond to God's greatness with reverence. And then we turn around and look at these amazing creatures God has made in his own image. In his own image. 
men and women, boys and girls, and we treat them with respect because they are made in God's image. The alternative is unthinkable. To slap the image of God in the face is to slap God in the face. Folks, David is telling us something profound here. He is giving us a clue. He's telling us our identity. We're made in the image of God, and that makes us significant, and that makes other human beings worth giving your respect to. God not only made us in his image, but God also entrusted us with an incredible responsibility. Here's our responsibility. God made mankind to rule over the earth. This is the second way David emphasizes our significance. God has given us a unique responsibility to rule over his creation. Now, you've got to just stop here for a moment, because right now you get, most of us are like, all right, big deal, so what? Rule over creation. And it doesn't mean anything to us. Don't have time to go into all of this, but let me just give you just this brief highlight here. You take the word rule, and rule is normally ascribed to whom? In reserve for whom? Our God. On earth, we normally think of rule for kings or for presidents, those who in, in, in power and with authority. God is the one who rules. Jesus is the one who rules, and rightfully so. And so get this. God here in his grace, is sharing his rule with mankind. Blow me away. Listen, he's making us rulers over his creation. Listen to what God tells us in Genesis 1 again. This time, in verse 28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. The word dominion here is the idea of rule. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And David is saying the same thing here in verse 6. You have made him, that is mankind, to have dominion over the works of your hands, God. God, you have put all things under his feet. And so get your mind around this. Wrap your mind around this thought. God did not give this responsibility to the animals, nor even to his angels. God gave this responsibility to rule over the earth to us as human beings. And again, that makes us what? Significant in God's eyes, valuable, and gives us meaning and purpose in life. Why? Because as human beings who are made in the image of God, we are the only ones on this earth who can reflect God's glory back to a world by how we fulfill our responsibility and how we live under the rule of God. How we live in submission to God as our creator. So here's the question. How has mankind done with that? How did Adam and Eve do with that? And we know how we've done with that. Horrible. Sinful. Look around humanity. We're a complete and total failure when it comes to fulfilling this part of our responsibility. Because of sin, mankind has not and is not 
ruling over God's creation as God intended. Creation is not in submission. Creation is in chaos. So are we doomed? Or is there hope for us? Oh, there is hope, believe you me. Which brings us to the final reason we should stand in awe of our God. Notice number four, stand in awe because of the certainty of God's plan. In the last half of verse 6, David writes this little phrase. He says, God, you have put all things under his feet, under man's feet. But we don't see that, do we? We don't see mankind ruling over the earth as God intended. It seems like cancer rules more. It seems like tragedies are ruling more, right? It seems like political tyrants rule more. I mean, when you look, turn on the news or turn on your computer and look at the news on the Internet, what do you see? Look around the world and what do you see? You see chaos and evil. You see pain and suffering. You see death all around us. And that's what the writer going forward to the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews said. In fact, the writer here, it's interesting, he quoted a little bit of Psalm 8, this very psalm here, and then he writes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, listen to what he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, mankind, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, here's the key, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's the bad news. That's horrible news. That's, that's, there's no hope. Until we come to verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, and that's where we see the good news. The writer goes on, he says, but, but, but we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Whoa, blow me away again. Stand in awe of that. Here's the certainty of God's plan. Notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. We don't yet see God's plan in final living color, but we do see Jesus Christ. Yes, it's true. We do not yet enjoy the destiny mapped out for us here in Psalm 8, but one man does, and his name is Jesus, and that gives us all the hope we need. Here's the point. Psalm 8, listen to me, needs a Savior because the people in Psalm 8 are sinners. Therefore, Psalm 8 needs someone who can take the punishment for what we deserve. So God, get this, in His amazing grace, in His loving kindness for mankind, sends His Son Jesus Christ down to this earth, made Him a little lower than the angels. That's why He came in the form of flesh, in the human being, and he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. To redeem us with his death on the cross. 
in his resurrection. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God then bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And now his name is the most majestic in all the earth. That's the point here of Hebrews chapter 2. It's telling us that Psalm 8 is not a pipe dream. That it will come to fruition and will be fulfilled. God's plan is certain. True, we don't yet see it full-blown, but we do see Jesus Christ. One man is already reigning. He's already crowned with glory and honor as our King. And that is the assurance. That is our hope for all who have been redeemed, that we will one day do what? That we will rule with Jesus Christ here on this earth. Glory, blow me away again. In fact, Revelation, you go to the end of the book of the Bible, you go to Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, listen to what it says. He has made them a kingdom. Who's them? Those who have been redeemed. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and now trust Him to give them new life, a new heart, and now they're living for Jesus Christ to those people. He has made them a kingdom, priest to our God, and He says, and they shall reign on earth. So how can you doubt your royal future when Jesus Christ has already begun enjoying it? Listen to me. In light of all these reasons that David explodes with here in Psalm 8, what should our response be to the majesty of God? Our only response is to fall down and worship God as our Lord. When you put all this together, when you look at everything that David has said, how, how can we not respond in worship? When you realize that the praise of the weakest Christian is more powerful than the strength of God's enemies, it leads us to worship. When you see the beauty of what God has created on earth and in the heavens, it makes you want to worship. When you think that of, out of all of God's creation, God has zero end on you, it makes you want to fall down and worship. In other words, when you look up, and you see the majesty of God, our only response is to fall down on our knees in worship of God as our Lord. You say, why? Well, get this. What David is showing us here in this psalm is that the study of God, which theologians call theology. Theology is a word that means the study of God. And so the study of God always leads us to the worship of God. Theologians have a word for that too. It's called doxology. How many have heard of that word? Doxology. just means worshiping God, praising God. And what David is doing, he begins the psalm, what? In worship of God. And then he does the study of God in between, and then he ends with worship of God, doxology. And so the study of God always should lead us to the worship of God. And folks, that's why it's important for us to come to church on a weekly basis. 
That's why it's important for us to gather as a church family and to hear God's word taught and preached. That's why it's important for us to be in God's word during the week, Monday between the Sundays, learning about God, studying God, because when our hearts are filled with God, you can't help but fall down and worship him. So no wonder David ends this psalm in verse 9 by singing, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. As you bow your heads, and as we come to our response time, the first step in worshiping God, though, is to worship His Son, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. To put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And to receive new life in Him. And then begin to live for Jesus as a Christ follower. And when you think about it, worship of God, it really comes down to living out our purpose as a church. To know Christ, to grow in Christ, show Christ, and then go with Christ. That's what worshiping God as our Lord is all about. So let me ask you, how are you doing in those four areas? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior here this morning? Has there been a time in your life when you've bowed before him, you've come before the cross and realized your sinfulness, admitted that to God, and asked him to forgive you and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And for those of you that already have, are you getting to know Jesus more on a weekly basis? Are you growing in your relationship with Christ? Are you showing the love of Christ to those around you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers? And are you going with Christ and sharing the hope of Christ with those who don't yet know him yet? All of these things is what it means to worship him. And how can we not do this when we stand in awe of the majesty of God? So as Zach sings a verse here, let me encourage you to come in prayer right where you're seated, and to praise God, to worship Him. Thank Him for something. Praise Him for something. Perhaps you need to confess sin. Perhaps you need to ask Him to forgive you. Perhaps you need to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Respond however God is leading you to do so.